0: It is important as we begin to approach Van Til's Trinitarian theology in this module that we allow Van Til himself, through the primary sources, to instruct us regarding his doctrine of the Trinity. This is so for at least two important reasons. First, misunderstandings of Cornelius Van Til's theology abound. Whether it be the work of the De Boers in the 50s, John Vanderstelt in the 70s, R.C. Sproul and John Gershner in the 80s and 90s, or John Fesco and Keith Matheson in the past few years, there are fundamental misunderstandings of Van Til's theology. And these misunderstandings rest in large part on a lack of careful exposition and sympathetic understanding of Van Til's work. As Christian scholars, we need to do our best to understand any theologian on his own terms and in light of the primary sources that best express his thought on a given matter. And this leads to my second point, closely related to the first. In Van Til's case, we need to understand Van Til's Trinitarian formulae in light of his published corpus and against the backdrop of the issues that he was dealing with in his own immediate context. This means that we need to be guided by a proper understanding of Van Til through a sympathetic and critical examination of his primary works on this topic. By sympathetic, I mean that we need to try to understand Van Til's own language, and theological formulae in the way he intended to be understood. That is, as a confessionally Reformed theologian seeking to express a robust Trinitarian theology in the service and development of a Reformed apologetic. And by critical, I mean that we need and need to be willing, where necessary, to subject Van Til himself to criticism and refinement. Certainly, all of us can speak with greater dogmatic precision and achieve greater theological clarity on any given topic. Van Til is no exception to that. Thus, we should not have an a priori blindly to defend Van Til simply because Van Til said it. Nor, on the other side, should we have an a priori simply to disagree with Van Til because Van Til said it. In short, we should not engage in a wholesale rejection of Van Til, on the one hand, nor should we engage in idealized hagiography of Van Til, on the other side. We need sincere engagement, careful analysis, and scholarly engagement of his theology. And that's what this module aims to embody. Now the topic that's before us as we begin is the context, the constructive reformed context for the development of Van Til's Trinitarian theology. And we cannot come close to saying everything that needs to be said in this lecture, but we need to make initial steps forward in understanding What are the theological constructions behind Van Til's dogmatic formulations? And the most extensive place, an intensive place, that Van Til engages this topic of Trinitarian theology is in chapter 17 of his Introduction to Systematic Theology. In that section, you find the fundamental structural strands of Van Til's Trinitarian Theology. So let us take some time to examine that chapter in some considerable detail and look at the doctrinal affirmations that Van Til sets forward and the structural significance of his doctrine of the Trinity. And we can start by saying that when Van Til himself formulates his dogmatic theology, it would be put most basically a confessional, Reformed Trinitarianism. A confessional Reformed Trinitarianism that's going to have two fundamental expressions. Uh, If you're looking for the foundational dogmatic expression of Van Til's theology, the best place to begin, according to Van Til himself in chapter 17, of the Introduction to Systematic Theology is in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the WCF. The Westminster Confession of Faith, particularly two three. Having cited several passages from Scripture to adduce the doctrine of the Trinity, and we will not be examining those proof texts, he lists several, Van Til begins his doctrinal discussion under the heading Doctrinal Statement. And that doctrinal statement begins with a quotation from Westminster Confession 2.3. Now, a couple of things that need to be said about Van Til taking a starting point in the Scriptures as the Westminster Confession summarizes the scriptural teaching regarding the Trinity. A couple of points need to be known. Not only did Van Til view the Trinity as the foundational doctrine of the Christian religion, as the central concern of the teaching of Scripture in terms of its comprehensive scope and depth, but he confesses a creedal and Reformed confessional doctrine of the Trinity explicitly and immediately. Now what that means is this, Van Til is not a biblicist who is aiming at novelty. He is not a philosophically driven theologian interested in innovation beyond creedal and confessional dogma. He begins his doctrinal statement with the confessional theology of the church and it helps us grasp something of an axiom. Something of a starting point for understanding Van Til's Trinitarian theology, and it's this. His Trinitarian formulae enshrine the classical Reformed Trinitarianism, the confessional Reformed Trinitarianism summarized in 2 3 in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So, whatever Van Til seeks to develop as a Reformed Trinitarian theologian, However, he seeks to explicate the doctrine of the Trinity. What you have fundamentally and foundationally is Reformed Trinitarian theism as encapsulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So in light of that, the very first sentence that begins Van Til's doctrinal statement of the Trinity is this. In the unity of the Godhead, Westminster Confession 2.3, In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, if you're looking to represent this in terms of a basic uh, visual aid, there is one God, one living and true God. This is fundamental monotheism. Van Til is strident in affirming there is one God who is the same in substance and power and glory, but this one God Exists as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, and there are at least two points that need to be made here. First, Vantill understands the teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith to be a faithful summary of biblical teaching regarding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as distinct persons who are subsisting relations in the unity of the Godhead. One God, three persons, three persons who are one God. Second, and germane to our purposes for this course, Van Til seeks to confess, defend, and develop the classical Reformed theism contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is important. He does not begin with a contemporary dogmatic theologian, Voss or Bavink. He does not begin with an ancient or Reformation theologian, Augustine or Calvin. No matter how important those individual expressions of Trinitarianism are, Augustine, Calvin, Bavink, or Voss, He begins with the Westminster Confession of Faith because he is a confessionally Reformed theologian in the classically Reformed tradition. He presents his own theology of the Trinity, and he begins self-consciously with the Scriptures as summarized in a central Reformed symbol, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that teaches classical Trinitarian monotheism. But it's not merely that Van Til begins with the Westminster Confession of Faith. Van Til, in this chapter, ties his understanding of the confession to its reception in Old Princeton through the work of A. A. Hodge. Van Til ties his understanding of conf- the confession's teaching. To its reception in Old Princeton, exhibited and summarized in the work of A. A. Hodge, particularly in Hodge's commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. So, Van Til, and this is critical to appreciate, he does not take his own novel view of the teaching of the Confession and speak in a corner about the novelty of his own interpretation, he instead receives the confession as it has been received through the published works of those in the old Princeton tradition. He takes the work of A. A. Hodge, representative of old Princeton, and relays to us in capsule form the reception of classical confessional reformed Trinitarianism in its old Princeton expression and defense through the work of A. A. Hodge's Commentary on the Confession of Faith. And this is important as we raise the question about Van Til's relation to the Reformed tradition. Is Van Til a confessional theologian of the Trinity, working in terms of the received classical theism embedded in the Reformed symbols, Or is he a self-conscious innovator, seeking to move beyond that confessional tradition, perhaps through the baneful influence of philosophical uh, categories that he might inherit from Kant, Hegel, or the Boston Personalists, for instance? Well, the answer to that question, in terms of Van Til's own work, is that he is not only self-consciously confessional, but he situates his own understanding of the Confessions theology within its reception by Old Princeton as exhibited in the work of one of its luminaries, A.A. Hodge. So, let us move on to understand the basic contours of the Confessions doctrine of the Trinity especially the way that it begins to bear on Van Til's development of that doctrine in the service of Reformed apologetics. Because Van Til, before he talks about worldview, before he talks about covenant, before he talks about anything else, he begins with the doctrine of the self-contained ontological trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are one God one self-contained triune God. Now, to try to break this down and make it um, understandable, Hodge himself offers three foundational propositions that summarize the teaching of the Confession contained in Confession three, And so I'm going to call these the three structural strands that taken together comprise the core of Van Til's own Trinitarian theology. And let me make explicit from the outset something that Van Til pushes us to do at every point. We're going to have to keep these three structural strands together at every point. It's not simply that we confess each distinct proposition, although we do, but it's that we Hold them together in all of the mystery producing union when the three are brought together. These three propositions represent mutually reinforcing truths about the identity of the one living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so those three structural strands we need to understand. In the section, that we've talked about in uh, Chapter 17 of the IST, ent- entitled "The Doctrinal Statement of the Trinity," Van Til cites directly from A. A. Hodge these three mutually intertwined structural strands that forge the foundation of classical Reformed Trinitarian theology. In an explanation, Hodge gives them, and I'll read them, and then we'll develop them, and I'll put them in summary form. Uh, Put them in summary form right here. And I'm not going to write the whole sentence out on the board, but just give a summary first. First, Hodge says, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are equally that one God, and that the indivisible divine essence and all divine perfections and prerogatives belong to each in the same sense and in the same degree. And so we could call that the unity of the essence. The unity of the essence. One indivisible essence, all divine perfections and prerogatives, equal in each, in the same sense and in the same degree. Second, that the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are not different names of the same person in different relations, but denote different persons. So there's the unity of the divine essence, And within the unity of the divine essence are three distinct Trinitarian persons. They're not three modes, they are three persons. Not different names of one person in different relations, but three distinct persons. And then third, these three divine persons are distinguished from one another by certain personal properties and are revealed in a certain order of subsistence and of operation. And so we'll call it here an order of subsistence and operation. The personal properties of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit denote an order of subsistence an operation relative to the divine essence. Now these are three conjointly integral aspects of a robust confessional theology of the Trinity. And these are the propositions that Van Til himself cites from Hodge and says that not only are these three summarizing propositions valuable, but that the whole of the discussion in which Hodge engages in that section of the Confession of of Faith is extremely valuable. So what I want us to do is take each of these propositions that I've summarized on the board and develop them as we come to understand the nature of the confessional Reformed Trinitarianism that grounds Van Til's approach at every point. So, first, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are each equally that one God, and the indivisible divine essence. And all divine perfections and prerogatives belong to each in the same sense and the same degree. Now let me start then by talking about the one living and true God and the numerical unity and divine simplicity of the essence of this one living and true God. While there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, There is an indivisible divine essence that contains all the divine prerogatives and perfections that are possessed by each person in the same sense and in the same degree. Now this means that the indivisible divine essence and all of the perfections proper to that essence belong equally to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. All that this one God is, in the indivisibility of His essence, in the sum total of the perfections that constitute and qualify that essence, the Father is, the Son is, and the Spirit is. But we can say it more precisely. The Father is God without remainder. The Son is God without remainder and the Holy Spirit is God without remainder to put this more directly and this is critical to appreciate the divine essence is not something above beyond behind or outside of the Trinitarian persons rather each person just is the entire and undivided essence of the one God all the divine perfections all the divine attributes that comprise the essence of God belong to each person without remainder so we cannot ever think of the essence of God being at any point separated from each divine person, or each divine person being in some way separated from that essence. Now I'm going to let Hodge draw out the implications of this and talk to you about this. This is uh, from his work in the Confession of the Faith. It's going to begin on page 57. And the quotes that follow will be following that. Listen to what Hodge says amplifying this first proposition about the monotheism that is foundational to a confessional Reformed Trinitarianism. He says this, It follows that if the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost consist of the same numerical essence, they must have the same identical attributes in common, that is, there is common to them one intelligence and one will. So, stop and think about that. Let's talk first about the same numerical essence. When we're talking about one God and we're talking about monotheism, there is a numerical unity to the essence. A numerical unity. By indivisible essence and the numerical unity of that essence, Hodge affirms the divine simplicity and substantial unity of the Godhead each person possesses all of the undivided essence all of the divine perfections without remainder but they are not three gods there is only one God with one undivided essence and he is numerically one the numerical unity Of the one God, the single indivisible divine essence, is something Van Til, through Hodge, affirms as foundational and, in terms of the order of presentation, first in the exposition. Now, this numerical unity of the divine essence is different from creatures who have what Hodge, Bavink, and Van Til call a generic unity. For instance, In generic unity, there is a class of humanity, image bearers, who all have a human nature. It's a generic unity of nature possessed by several separate individuals. Human nature, however, does not exhaust the identity of the creature, since there are a number of accidental properties beyond human nature that distinguish humans in the class of humanity. Some are tall, some are short, some are wise, some are smart. But in the human being, there is more in the particular human being than there is in the essence of the human nature. I may be a tall human, a short human, a smart human, a wise human, a kind human, But I am distinguished from other human beings in the class by accidental features that move beyond my essence or nature as a human being. That is a generic unity. That is not the unity of God. That is not a divine numerical unity. The divine nature, and this is key, The divine nature itself is what distinguishes God, the one God, from all that is not God. So if you're going to have in the background here the Creator-Creature distinction. Creator-Creature. And you remember this from our last uh, series. What distinguishes the Creator from the creature is found in its entirety in the divine nature, which is one indivisible essence. God is not one in a class like humans. He is sui generis, categorically unique from all that is created and possessed of a single numerical unity and indivisible divine nature. There is not one essence and three separate persons as you find with creatures who have a generic unity of essence. Rather, the divine nature exhausts the identity of God and the divine nature distinguishes God from all that is not God. God is identical to His one divine nature And that nature cannot be multiplied in numerous instances like human nature, nor is there something in addition to that nature that distinguishes God from creatures. God is distinguished from all that is not God by His undivided nature, by His numerical unity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinctly and without remainder the one living and true God. Now that's point one. So we'll call that numerical unity. But secondly, and this is uh, uh, of equal importance, I want you to note that when Hodge is talking about the unity of the essence and the one living and true God here, he also says there is a common intelligence and a common will. One intelligence and one will. See, one intelligence and one will is an entailment of the numerical unity of the essence. And it is an entailment of the divine simplicity of that essence. Hodge says that each person, quote, must have the same identical attributes in common, that is, there is common to them one intelligence and one will. As Bavinck would say, there is one, we'll look at this later, self-consciousness, one self-determination that is common to all of the persons. But listen to the logic of this. Let's expound it. If God is numerically one, Then he has one intelligence and one will, one self-determined existence as the one living and true God. This is the strongest affirmation of numerical unity and divine simplicity, now entailing what? A common intelligence and a common will. God In the unity of his essence is neither divided in his mind his intelligence nor is he divided in his will there are not three separate intelligences there are not three separate wills because within the unity of the divine essence given its numerical unity and absolute simplicity there can be only one common intelligence and one common will. Hodge says in his Outlines of Theology amplifying this that we cannot conceive of how three persons can have among them but one intelligence and one will. That's page 195 of his Outlines of Theology. But this is precisely what the doctrines of God's numerical unity, an undivided essence entails. Neither the being, nor the knowledge, nor the will of God is capable of partition or division. God's being is numerically one. God's knowledge is numerically one. God's will is numerically one. But that raises the question, that classical Trinitarians ask precisely in light of this numerical unity of essence and divine simplicity. That question is this. How do we relate the three persons of the Trinity to the one substance, one intelligence, and one will of the living and true God? This leads us to the second and third propositions, which I'm going to treat together, and you'll see why as we develop it. The second and third propositions regarding the three persons who are the one God as they retain discriminating and incommunicable personal properties, and as such subsist and operate within the unity of the Divine Essence. So let me read those two summarizing propositions of Hodge here, propositions two and three, and then we're going to treat them together and we'll illustrate why as we move along. He says, second, these titles, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, are not different names of the same person in different relations. That's the error of modalism. They are rather names of three persons. Three distinct persons. And he says, these three divine persons are distinguished from one another by certain personal properties and are revealed in a certain order of subsistence and operation. Now we need to amplify this and understand now how Westminster Confession three as received by Old Princeton, expound by A. A. Hodge, how it relates the unity and numerical um, singularity of the divine essence to the three persons who retain incommunicable personal properties as modes of subsistence within that divine essence. He says this. He says, The properties of each Divine person, on the other hand, are those peculiar modes of subsistence which distinguish the relation of each to the other. And so, what Hodge begins to do in light of propositions two and three is you have one God, one undivided essence. And each person is a mode of subsistence who as a mode of subsistence is identical to the undivided essence. We need to unpack that. The personal properties that distinguish the Trinitarian persons are as follows. The Father is unbegotten. You can call that paternity. The Son is begotten by the Father. You can call that filiation. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. You can call that spiration. So paternity... Filiation and spiration denote three incommunicable, discriminating personal properties. They amount to real relations of personal distinction within the undivided essence of God. The father possesses the property of being unbegotten paternity. The Son possesses the property of being eternally begotten by the Father, filiation. The Spirit possesses the personal property of being uh, spirated by the Father and the Son. Filioque is invoked at that point. And the properties cannot be interchanged. You cannot ascribe filiation to the Father, nor can you ascribe spiration to the Son. This means that there is a bona fide and irreducible diversity in the Godhead that is equally basic to the undivided unity. There's an irreducible diversity in the Godhead that is equally basic to the unity. Each person is distinguished from the others by a personal property not common to all but instead unique to each. So, there's one undivided divine essence and three incommunicable personal properties that denote true or authentic personal relation within the Godhead. This is one of the greatest mysteries and difficulties in Trinitarian theology. While confessing the undivided unity of the Godhead, and while confessing that each person is entirely that undivided essence, confessional reformed Trinitarianism also confess, confesses there are three properties not common to all persons, but rather unique and discriminating paternity, filiation, and spiration. So, to belabor a point that needs belaboring, paternity distinguishes the Father to the Son as both are God. Filiation distinguishes the Son from the Father as both are God. Inspiration distinguishes the Spirit from the Father and the Son as all three are God. Now what more then do we need to say about these distinguishing personal properties in order to avoid the specter of tritheism? The idea that there are three separate self-conscious centers in the Godhead. Well, here's the answer given by the old Princeton reception of the Westminster Confession and affirmed by Van Til in chapter 17 of uh, Introduction to Systematic Theology. Here's a key. These personal properties are personal relations of subsistence among the persons in the Godhead who are equal in glory and power, the same in substance without remainder. That is, the Father as unbegotten is not the Son, but subsists as the entire and undivided essence of God. The Father subsists entirely as the one God. The Son, as He is distinguished from the Father, paternity and filiation, the Son Himself also subsists as the one undivided essence of God. And the Holy Spirit subsists as he is distinguished by spiration from Father and Son, subsists as the one God. The one undivided essence of God. So the Father as unbegotten is not the Son, but subsists as the entire and undivided essence of the Godhead. The Son, eternally begotten of the Father, while not the Father, subsists As the entire and undivided essence of God, and the same is true of the Spirit. These incommunicable personal properties are at the same time modes of subsistence or subsistent relations within the undivided unity of the Godhead. So the personal properties are at the same time subsistent relations in the entire divine essence. What does that mean? Well, it means this. That each person, while distinguished from the other by incommunicable personal properties, subsists entirely as God without remainder. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit subsist as the entire divine essence while retaining their distinctive, incommunicable, personal properties of paternity, filiation, and spiration. No one person has more or less deity than the others. They are absolutely, and without qualification, co-equal, having the same substance, power, and glory in precisely the same degree. And so the notion of subsisting relations helps explain the way we can affirm a real distinction of persons in the Godhead without dividing or partitioning the essence of the Godhead. Each person is exhaustively identical to the whole of the divine essence as a personal subsistence, as a mode of subsistence, while being personally distinct from the others in the Godhead. So for a Trinitarian person to subsist as the divine essence means that the person is related to the essence by way of exhaustive identity. Nothing in the divine essence is missing from all that the Father is. And the same with the Son, and the same with the Spirit. The three persons, to put it differently, do not divide the one essence of God, since each subsists distinctively and personally as that entire divine essence. Now, what is the implication of that? The implication of that basic orthodox reformed confessional Trinitarianism is that what goes with reference to the essence also goes with reference to the common intelligence and will. So the three persons do not divide the one essence of God, nor do they divide the common or one intelligence of God, nor did they divide the common or one will of God. The three persons do not divide the Godhead either with respect to substance, intelligence, or will. So here's the key. Neither the undivided divine essence nor the incommunicable personal properties Introduce accidents into the Godhead. They are equally basic, equally fundamental, and equally ultimate to God, the Trinity. The distinct persons are God in subsistent relations. The entire undivided essence is in each person without remainder. This, in brief, is basic Trinitarian orthodoxy spelled out in a bit more detail than those three summarizing propositions. And all of this comes to expression when we realize that the order of subsistence is also matched in the order of operation. The order of operation. I want to use an illustration that might be a little bit more concrete if you're struggling to understand. This is difficult material, but it's got to be understood because it's foundational um, uh, creedal and confessional Trinitarian orthodoxy. Um, All this comes to expression when we remember this. As St. Augustine said, all of the works of God, all of the the opera of God, the works of God outside of Himself are one. But those works have a distinct personal terminus. The works of God in creation and redemption are the work of one God, but there is a personal terminus to the works of God, and I just want to give you two illustrations of it that might help. The clearest that I can see are the events of Incarnation and Pentecost. In the Incarnation, while the work of God in Incarnation is undivided, it is the Son and not the Father or Spirit who is incarnate. The person of the Son is the terminus of the Incarnation. It is the terminal work of a person the distinct one who is marked out by the personal property affiliation. This one, not the Father, not the Spirit, this one is incarnate. Even though the works of God are undivided, there is a distinct personal terminus to that work of the one God, and the incarnation is a fantastic illustration of that. The Father did not take to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. The Holy Spirit did not take to Himself a true body or a reasonable soul. This is true only of the Son, even though He cannot be at any point divided from the essence or separated from the other persons. At Pentecost, as another example, it is not the Father or the Son who is poured out from heaven in Acts 2, 32-33. Remember, Jesus is raised. He is endowed with the Spirit. He ascends. And He pours out the Spirit from heaven. This is the terminal and personal work of the Spirit. And it's the Spirit who unites the church to the crucified and ascended Christ. The Spirit is the bond of union between the church and Jesus Christ viewed from the divine side. That bond of union is not the Father. That bond of union is not the Son. It is the Spirit who unites the church to the crucified and ascended Christ. This is true only of the Spirit, even though He cannot be divided at any point from the Godhead, nor can He be separated at any point from the other persons. You see, matching the unique, subsistent relations is a certain order of operation distinct to each person of the Godhead. Now, these three insights taken together lead Hodge to make the following observation. He says... And this is uh, from a a work outside of his Westminster Confession work, but it's perfectly consistent with it. He says this. This is in Evangelical Theology, pages 102-103. to He says that God exists eternally and constitutionally as three self-conscious persons. Self-conscious. I'll just abbreviate there with SC, self-conscious persons. But for aught we can know in the depths of the infinite being, there may be a what? Common consciousness. If there's one common intelligence, one common will, then there's one consciousness. Just as there is self-consciousness when it comes to each subsistent relation, So there is a one consciousness that is an entailment of the numerical unity of essence and the divine simplicity. There is a common consciousness which includes the whole Godhead and a common personality. Common consciousness, common personality, yet there are three self-conscious persons. And he says this may be all true, but what belongs to us to deal with is the sure and obvious fact of revelation that God exists from eternity as three self-conscious persons. Now here's what you need to start to appreciate. The common intelligence, common will, common consciousness, common personality is a direct entailment of the thoroughgoing monotheism of the numerical unity and divine simplicity of God's essence. The self-conscious persons who are modes of personal subsistence with discriminating personal properties, that's the entailment here of the triunity, of what it means to be a triune person, discriminating personal properties in personal relations of subsistence. Hodge is aware of the mystery involved, and recognizes here that what we have is a mystery that transcends all analogy a mystery beyond all analogies in creatures you see given the simplicity of god's essence given the numerical unity hodge lines these points up there's a common intelligence a common will and the corollary common consciousness, and common personality. The corollary of the one divided, undivided intelligence and one undivided will is that God is this. Listen to this language. He is self-sufficient, self-determined, self-contained, and self-revealing. These are all entailments of the unity of His essence. But the incommunicable personal properties, when Hodge speaks of self-consciousness, those incommunicable personal properties in no way suggest three separate centers of self-consciousness. This is so because the subsisting relations in the Godhead do not divide or partition the essence so that we have an ultimate plurality that transcends a substantial unity. The Father does not have an intelligence that is individually separate from the Son. The Son does not have an intelligence individually separate from the Father, and the same with the Spirit. Each Trinitarian person, as a self-conscious person, at the same time subsists distinctly as the entire and undivided intelligence, will, and consciousness of the one living and true God. There is thus a one consciousness that Hodge confesses due to the undivided numerical unity of the divine essence. There is a three consciousness he confesses due to the three subsisting relations of Father, Son, and Spirit, who are that one undivided essence. And he says, page 58, we must ever continue to confess that this is a profound mystery that transcends all analogy. It is equally necessary to affirm one mind, one will, one intelligence, one consciousness, and that God exists from all eternity as three self-conscious persons. This is the first foray into an exposition of Westminster Confession 2.3 as it was received by Old Princeton that supplies the three structural strands for Van Til's Trinitarian theology. And these three structural strands must be held together in their orthodoxy and mystery at every point. And as we do that, we start to recognize this, and we'll try to develop this, that this theology is not designed to solve mathematical problems, but designed to move the church to worship the incomprehensible God who is one and three, three and one, and is to be glorified and worshipped and praised by the creature who receives his revelation as it is given in the Scriptures, as it is summarized in the Confessional Standards, and begins, in union with Christ after the fall, to worship the living and true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the first development of Van Til's Trinitarian theology contained in the Introduction to Systematic Theology in chapter 17. And what we'll look at next will be his discussion and appropriation of Bavinck and Old Amsterdam and how those two uh, themes, Old Princeton and when we get to it, um, Old Amsterdam with Bavinck continue to help fill out the picture of Van Til as the integrator of the English Puritan and Dutch confessional Trinitarian tradition.